You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Everybody loves a good underdog story. It's both entertaining and inspiring. It's represented to us in books, in movies, plot lines, in plays. The idea of someone that you would not expect to do well, to perform well, to present well, Uh, Perhaps they don't have a history of doing so. Even something in those reality shows of performance like American Idol and America's Got Talent, somebody that presents themselves seemingly unprofessional and or comes from a line of work that you would not expect them to have, say, vocal chops, the ability to sing in a way that would be professional and presentable, and then they step up after introducing themselves and sort of seeing the camera pan the judges' faces where they just expect very little, if anything, from them. And then that singer hits that first note and everybody begins to say, wow, I think we have something here. It's not just in those musical auditions, it's even in sports attempts. We think about the 1988 Winter Olympics. Who of all people would have a submission to the bobsled competition? Jamaica. What? Even made a major motion picture off of this. How could that be possible? It was. I think about the story even eight years before that at the Winter Olympics, 1980, known later as the dream on ice, the miracle on ice, the story of the United States of America's hockey team. Impressive in a certain area. They were filled with amateurs and college players, but they were no match for someone like the Russian hockey team who had played together for years and was unbelievably good on ice, like a a symphony of performance. And the underdogs of the United States of America hockey team beat them. And it shocked the world. They would go on to beat Finland and win the Olympic gold medal. Man, these stories are awesome. And the movies that are trying to retell them to inspire us. But it's not just that it entertains us. It is, as I've said, inspirational. And part of the reason why these stories are inspirational is because it kind of feels like we too could maybe do something great. We are not maybe famous, we're not maybe well-known, we're maybe not impressively athletic, except for our days in fourth grade, and those are long gone now. No one's impressed with our medals and our trophies from middle school or high school. Those are just stories that we tell of the days gone by, but we come across stories like this and we get sort of an inspirational idea of what maybe we could do, what maybe God could do with us, and it starts to inspire us, and even if we can't ever do it, we, that time might be past, we're happy to see other people do it. We love the underdog story. Even in fictitious renditions like Karate Kid or Rocky, 
the storyline continues to deliver hope. Well, today, we are told an underdog story. Compliments in a book in the Bible titled Joshua. I ask you to turn there, if you would, with me. If you're new to the Bible, Joshua, being the sixth book in the Bible, tells the story of the people of Israel led by their new leader, Joshua. Their previous leader, Moses, has just died. They're on the edge of seemingly potential greatness. I say potential because they don't know it. They've been promised it, but they've not yet seen it. And Joshua has been told repeatedly in chapter 1, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong and very courageous. And the reason is not because Joshua is supposed to muster up some type of belief in himself, some type of you know, recitation he says in the mirror every morning of his ability. Instead, he believes in the God who will work through him, accomplishing his purposes according to his promises. We come to Joshua chapter 2, where they're on the edge of a military conquest. And really what we're going to learn this morning in Joshua chapter 2 is the following. Faith is fueled by providence and people. But that's what we want to learn by summary this morning is we're going to see it unpacked. Faith is fueled by providence and people. As we think about this, to help you understand and appreciate the way Joshua 2 is written, let me talk to you about what maybe some of you will have for lunch this afternoon. Some of you might choose to go home and not join us for lunch. I hope that you do join us, but even if you don't, that's fine. But you might go home and have a sandwich. And you know when you go home and have a sandwich, and you make a sandwich, or you go out to a store or a deli, and perhaps even public subs, let's go people, and you get a sandwich, the question is, what's going to be in it? Are we having turkey? Are we having pastrami? Are we having ham? It's, it's the meat. That's what you're ultimately enjoying and looking forward to. Sure, there are the condiments around it. There is the lettuce and there's a tomato. And sure, there is the bread that holds it all together. But the center reality is what you're most looking forward to. Often in the Hebrew scriptures, not all the time, but at times, the writers would write with that kind of sandwich-like mindset. It's common, for example, in the Psalms. It's like this sort of arrow pointing to the center truth to get the attention to focus there. With everything leading to that and coming out of that. It's with that in mind, I want you to follow along as I read Joshua chapter 2 to you, but drawing you to verses to see this sandwich together. We start with the commission by Joshua and then the return to Joshua. Look at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Now, Thinking about the commission, now think about the return. Jump down to verse 23. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, as if somehow we forgot his name, 
They told him all that had happened to them, and they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. These verses serve, if you will, as the the bread to the sandwich. We come then into the center section, or the next layer, if you will, rather, The rest of verse 1 through verses 7 is the arrival of the spies. Look at what happens. Go back to verse 1, the second half of it. They went and came down into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But Verse 6, she had brought them up to the roof and had hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers, pursuers had gone out. The arrival of the spies. Now, look at the spies escaping. Verse 14. The men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, even when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Verse 15, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. As she tied the scarlet cord in the window, verse 22, they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Now, let me just stop right now, pull the car over before we go any further down this road of the biblical text. So you get a sense of what's happening. Kind of understand the scene. Again, by way of reminder, for those of you who know, and by way of introduction, for those of you who do not know, you have essentially two million Israelites hanging out on the western or the eastern side, rather, of the Jordan River. Uh, two million Israelites is not some like small group of people that are missed. Uh, to get an understanding, when these spies are sent to Jericho, they're sent to cross over the Jordan River and go to what's about a distance of about 10 miles. So think about that. Think about like, hey, uh, 
we're going to send two people from our two million people up to Broward County to find out if we should cross over and go over there now. It isn't if Broward County is somehow ignorant that there's two million people hanging out in Miami-Dade. They all know we're here. They just hope we're not coming. And so what ends up happening is these two spies are told by Joshua to go into the land, searching it all out, and to go particularly to Jericho. Now, if you will, this is take two on sending spies. I say take two because as many of you know, from the earlier account under Moses' leadership, they pick from among the 12 tribes, 12 spies, to then send those 12 spies on behalf of the people of Israel to then go and check out the land. And those 12 come back, and 10 of the 12 say, no way. Euphemistically and literally over our dead bodies is this going to happen. And their lack of faith causes them to die in the wilderness as judgment from God because they will not trust God. Joshua and Caleb are the exceptions to that. Now, what's interesting is the description here that's given of these people in verse 1 is that it says that Moses sent them secretly. It's not secretly to the people they're being sent. That's obvious. They're called spies after all. You know, like, hey, I just want you to know I'm Eric. I'm a spy. If you do that, you're a bad spy. The gig is up. The secret was not from the people they're going to. That's implied an obvious reality. It's actually from the people of Israel. The people of Israel don't even know they're being sent. Why? Uh, because they didn't go too well for them last time they knew. So Joshua sends them, and they go to a house that's, it sounds like a nursery rhyme, in the wall of a village. We'll speak more to that in the coming weeks. We get to the city specifically of Jericho, as we see in the coming chapters. But this was a significantly huge wall that actually shelters were built into the wall. Now, they, of all places they go to, they go to a prostitute's house. As if it's not scandalous already for a Jewish person to enter into a Gentile's residence, to then choose to go into a Gentile residence who's actually a prostitute? The text doesn't tell us why that they made this decision. Uh, presumably, perhaps, just the simple wisdom of the fact that no one would think anything surprising to watch two men walk into an unmarried woman's property house if she's a prostitute during the day. That's what prostitutes do. They have men visit them throughout the day and throughout the night. Nothing to see here. Except the problem is they're not just two ordinary men. Ethnically, they're different than the people that are they're in that town. They're Jewish people. And people begin to hear, those people who entered, they're actually Jewish. They're part of those two million people on the other side of the river. We have a problem. And the king of Jericho, which would be like saying a modern-day mayor of the town of Jericho, the, the king of, Je of Jericho sends people to ask about them. And she's like, hey, yeah, they're here, or they were here, rather, but I sent them out. They're not here. You should go run up and try to catch them. Meanwhile, she put them up on the roof. What's interesting, though, in the text, as we've just read it, if you think about how it ends in verse 7, so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. You ever watch a TV show or a movie where they've got this dramatic scene, people's lives are on the line, 
They're waiting to see what happens, and then scene change. They're like, okay, but can we go back to that other scene? What, what happens with them? God, through the writing of his word, wants to direct the readers like you and like me to actually the bigger, more substantial significance of what's being said in the text. It's not what's going to happen to the spies. It's what's going to happen to Rahab and what she believes. And that takes us to the heart of the text this morning. So look with me now in verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Friends, there's three things we want to not miss about who the God is that's in this Bible. Put to us in high definition, surround sound here in this, tap, in this chapter. First of all, the God who rules. The God who rules. What you see here in the text is her conversation with these spies, referencing back in verse 8, I know that the Lord has given you the land. This idea of God giving is a repeating theme throughout this chapter, eight different times. In this chapter, verse 2, verse 3, verse 6, verse 11, verse 13, verse 14, twice in verse 15, it's this continued references to what God is doing whether it be the east or the west of the Jordan. What's significant here is what's being talked about is the fear. It says that, right? Look at back in verse 8, what it says, or verse 9. The fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Do you know what she's saying? Well, let me just have you look at it. Turn to the left in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Go to Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is the record of God's people having basically, like was done here on a Friday night, a worship service. They go public with praise in light of what God has done in saving them from the Egyptians. And in Exodus 15, you have what's titled, perhaps in some of your Bibles, the Song of Moses. 
declaring the greatness of God in light of his salvation of his people. But I want you to see a few verses to highlight what's being said here in Exodus 15, because it's essentially a prophecy. As it says, Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord. Look at verse 15. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan, that's where Jericho is at, have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by, to the people pass by by whom you have purchased. What is being prophesied in Exodus 15, Rahab is essentially saying 40 years later, here we are, it's us. We are the people you've heard about. We're scared to death. We are scared to death. But, but, but why? Look at verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water. Verse 10 of Joshua 2. How the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. She knows exactly to whom credit should be given for what has taken place in the people of Israel. She knows exactly where the power is. She understands who actually is the sovereign one. It's not the ragtag bunch of Israelites. There's no mathematical way in which those people are going to defeat the Egyptian military force. And she's basically saying, listen, if God is on your side and that you literally just have to take a walk through a, through a bed of water that's now been parted, to then collapse on your enemies, we don't stand a chance. And she also recognizes it's not like it's a freak incident. It's not like it's an anomaly. She goes on the text. You see it in verse 10 as well. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. It's like a, a warm-up lap for what was to come. What I want you to not miss here in the text is that what Rahab is saying is something I think significant about biblical faith. Biblical faith is based on some knowledge of facts, some data that's historically true, some evidence that's undeniable. These people really lived. This incident really happened. These kings were really defeated. There really was Jesus of Nazareth, who really appeared to people just like you and me, who really spoke, who really, believe it or not, walked on water, who really raised the dead, who really healed people who otherwise were blind. These things are facts. The step of faith is not a step into the unknown in regards to somehow being unreasonable, not being factual. It is nevertheless a step that you have to still believe. God gives undeniable evidence to the Canaanites overall, and particularly to Rahab, who's only but one of them, that there is a God who rules. No one can stay his hand. Nothing can keep him back. What you see here is the reminder that faith is not just some warm, cozy feeling about God. It is rooted in truth. So look at what she says next in verse 11. And as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted. 
There is no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab believes in the utter supremacy of the Lord. He is the only one functioning in heaven and earth. Why is this so significant? Because as a Canaanite, particularly as a prostitute, some have debated and wondered if she's actually a part of the, the uh, prostitutes of the Canaanite religion. Because that would not have been an uncommon practice with some of these pagan religions to actually have prostitutes as a part of their religious worship. Whether or not she's involved in prostitution for personal financial gain or some type of religious expression herself, she nevertheless, historically, as a Canaanite, would have believed in seemingly other gods. And they would have worshipped other gods accordingly. In fact, that's part of the concern before the Israelites about to go into the land, is that God's basically saying, don't you dare, don't you dare start keeping company with people who are going to have those other gods and mix those gods with me. Rahab is basically saying, we realize we were wrong. There is only one God. It's your God. He runs the heavens and he runs the earth. He's in charge of people. He's in charge of battles. He's in charge of bodies of water. It's his way because it's the only way. What's so significant here is to recognize what she's doing. She's essentially recanting of her previous beliefs. What she used to not believe, she now believes. What she used to not once believe, she no longer believes. Too often today when people try to present Christianity to people who don't otherwise know Christianity, have not heard from the teaching of Scripture, it is the desire to somehow be accepted and this idea of somehow asking you to add new beliefs to your existing beliefs. Like this idea, if we could think of it in financial terms, like, hey, you're investing in different stocks, different companies. There's one investment you've not made. You should also make, you should invest in Jesus. That one will return big on you. But they're not telling you to cash in your stocks in these other places. They're saying, no, no, just keep investing in Jesus. But the reality here in the scriptures throughout the Old and New Testament is, no, no, you have a choice to make. You either keep believing what you used to believe in some form or fashion, changing maybe those beliefs within that range, or you stop believing it and you now believe in what is biblically undeniably true. To come to the Lord and believe Him in His Word is to then, by implicit reality, to turn from, it's what the Bible calls repentance, to turn from what you otherwise previously believed and how you accordingly lived. Rahab recognizes the God who rules. Let's also learn from Rahab, the God who saves. She not only stands about the God who rules, she also understands the God who saves. Look at verse 12 and 13. Continuing this conversation. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. Here's what you see with Rahab. This is the evidence of faith. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God. 
but presses further to take refuge in that God. This is not sit up straight in life and act well. This is saying you've got a more fundamental problem. She has a more fundamental issue than simply, can I just simply get a pass? She's actually asking to be forgiven, to be pardoned, to take refuge in God. She not only believes God is great and powerful, but she also needs God's protection from his coming wrath. She knows what's about to take place with her village is not gonna go well for those people. Now, I don't want this to be lost in you, but do you realize the incident that she references back in verse 10, the Red Sea? Do you know how long ago that was? 40 years ago from the time of this conversation. For 40 years, those people have known God through his people are coming. And there are consequences to pay. And for 40 years, they had the information and they did nothing with it. This is not a bunch of Gentiles who have since turned their ways. They've continued their ways. I wonder how many of you perhaps grew up in the church. Uh, perhaps have been around with maybe Christian moms or dads, grandparents. You've heard the truth. You know the truth. What I'm teaching you today is not even strange to you. If I say turn to Josh or Exodus, you're like, I know those books. But knowing is not the same thing as actually believing. Understanding is not the same thing as surrendering. What's remarkable is also to see God's grace that those people had in the mystery of how God works in his world, even in his own people's lives. The Canaanites had 40 years and they did nothing with it. How long will it take you to hear God's word, extending God's grace in light of God's coming wrath and still not turn. You cannot say that you'll be surprised. That's not me being unloving, quite the opposite, that's me being loving. Friends, let's be quite clear what we're gonna read in the coming weeks and months of Joshua is a historical display of what is going to be a future global reality, which is the justice of God poured out on humanity. For knowing that there is a God, but refusing, as Romans 1 says, to turn to him. And friends, I am here on behalf of the Lord, saying from his word, God does not leave you to yourself hoping superstitiously that somehow if you do the right thing, you say the right thing, you go to the right church, you own the right Bible, you learn enough information that you'll be okay. He gives you his son. Jesus Christ is far more than just some ethical example to imitate, be more like Jesus. Jesus Christ is actually the son of God who fulfills God's law perfectly and then overwhelmingly, convincingly, shockingly dies sacrificially receiving upon himself the wrath that he does not deserve, that others of us deserve, as the wrath of God is poured out upon him, not us, and then resurrects from the grave three days later so that all those who would believe in him as being the son of God who takes away the sins of the world, that they would be forgiven. 
and no longer be judged. Rahab gets this theologically. The question is, do you get it presently? For Rahab, it was not enough to say, I know that there's a God and there's consequences. She says, I need, ironically, rescue from that God by that God. I need that God to save me. This isn't just about a correct theological belief. It's about a great personal need. The irony here is that she trembles in fear, and yet she senses there's mercy with God. Let's stop and take a break from this and consider this. We're in the middle of the story of Joshua. You know, Moses 2.0, about to take the Israelites into battle. Do you realize that there's a sense in which we don't need chapter 2 of Joshua to tell the story of the Israelites conquering Canaan? The way chapter 1 ends, you could go right from chapter 1 to chapter 3. So the question is, why this conversation? Why is God putting this in here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you for asking. Because he's wanted to teach a very profound lesson that should give everybody in this room great hope. Not only of God's character, impressive as it is, including his patience, but also God's extension of grace to seemingly the least likeliest of people you could imagine. Can I just remind you who we're talking about here? Go back, if you would, to verse 1. They went into and came into the house a prostitute whose name was Rahab? What's shocking here is to realize how significant this is and how much the writers of the Bible do not want you to miss this. Turn just a few chapters ahead to Joshua 6. After the fall of Jericho, spoiler alert, verse 22, but to the two men of Joshua 6, to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had spin spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of the bronze and of the iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse five, but Rahab the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And here's the key. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Ryder here doesn't want us simply to know that she wasn't killed. He wants us to know where she can actually be found with the people of God. Later on in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, we get this, what's known as hall of faith, kind of playing off of the phrase hall of fame. Hall of faith as we see it in Hebrews chapter 11. And then lo and behold, who shows up in the hall of faith? Verse 31 of Hebrews 11, by faith, 
Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. You think, that's cool. You know, honorable mention in the Bible, oh, it gets better. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the very beginning historical record of nothing less than the arrival of Jesus Christ the Savior, giving this long list of people going all the way back from Abraham on. How do we get to Jesus from Abraham? Lo and behold, who shows up in verse 5? It says, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Okay, wait, what? Check this out. Not only is Rahab saved and allowed to be with the people of God, she's actually a genealogical descendant in the history of Jesus Christ himself. Furthermore, just to check this out, you know who she is the great-grandmother of? The great-great-grandmother of King David. You know who she is the mother of? Boaz, which makes her the mother-in-law to Ruth. Okay, these are mic drop moments in the Bible that you need to not miss. Here's why, because I guarantee you there's somebody sitting here this morning who thinks, Eric, this talk of God's grace and mercy is all well and good, but I promise you, I promise you, if you've known what I've done, to whom I did it, for how long I did it, the consequences that I've, of things that I've done, I can promise you, God does not mean that to apply to me. I regularly, almost weekly, interact with people who think, yeah, but you don't know my story. And I'm like, go ahead, give it to me. And they give it to me, I'm like, yep, I know a lot of stories like that. I'm like, really? Why? Because one of the most common consequences from our sinful decisions is guilt and shame, and therefore the belief that God could never love us. The woman was known by everybody as a prostitute. That's what she did for work. And what's remarkable is for people like that to be told, no, God's grace can be extended to you as well. This is important for two groups of people in this room. Group one is the obvious one. The Rahab sitting here perhaps this morning. They've come out of a history of incarceration, out of addiction. If I asked you how many people you slept with, you can't keep count. The number is greater than you can actually have on, the, on your fingers on your hand. The things you've done you think should not be known. But the problem is God knows. And when Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you are heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest, he means people just like you. In fact, so often, he's talking specifically to people like you. Think about what the scriptures say in this regards. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But there's another group that needs to hear this as well this morning. The group that's uncomfortable with the Rahabs. 
Rahabs make you uncomfortable. They, they make you protect your children. Don't be like her. I think it would be important to realize the testimony of the church historically. 1 Corinthians 6 is a classic example of this. Paul gives a long list of people that will not inherit the kingdom of life because of how they have lived, their, their sort of deeds in light of their desires of their heart. But then he goes on and makes a statement, and such were some of you. Do you know what we have in common? We are all sinners who deserve the justice of God with the wrath of God being poured out upon us. And whether or not our sin was displayed immorally or self-righteously, through all of our morality, both of us needed forgiveness. Jesus' greatest opponents were not the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It was the religious elite, the Pharisees, who could not accept that God could love people like that. I mean to tell you, there's a lot of reasons why we're called Grace Church. This is one of them. We're a church where everybody is welcome to hear the gospel and to know that for every one of us, there is hope found in Christ. And because of the hope found in Christ, we will do as is done in Joshua chapter six. We will live together in community. We will love one another. It won't be easy at times, but we will seek to honor the Lord accordingly just as they did then. What you see here is crazy grace, mind-blowing grace, head-spinning grace, where God loves to save sinners that we think are outside of the reach of God's reach for them, how they come to understand Him and they give their lives to Him. Who here this morning still needs to do that? Who here needs to repent of their selfish, idolatrous, rebellious ways and say, God, I see that you are great and I come to you for the forgiveness of my sins through faith alone and Christ alone. This takes us to the third and final lesson, the God who provides. Just briefly here, verse 24. Having read the whole chapter, I want you to go back to verse 24 because it's, it's pretty, honestly, comical and encouraging. Verse 24, the spies get back to Joshua. They basically have to go hide the opposite direction of the town, give the guys a chance to come back to the town so we can't find them, then go back themselves to Joshua, cross the Jordan River and say, truly, verse 24, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and has also, and also all the inhabitants of the lands melt away because of us. <laughs> Here's what I want you to recognize is happening. The spies basically did not do a good job doing what Joshua told them to do. He told them to go into all the land, including Jericho. They just went to Jericho. And then the other part, they went to the other part of the land because they're basically hiding in the wilderness. They weren't like moving around like, you know, while we're out here, let's go ahead and like check out some of the land. They're, they're hiding. They don't want to get killed. And then they go back. So they basically do not have much sort of, if you will, data on what's going to be like in all the land. They just went to one town, met one woman, and the only person they talked to was a prostitute. You're like, can we get a different character witness? Is there somebody that we can put on the witness stand about the future of our two million people than her? They're convinced. In fact, what's so ironic, do you see what they're saying in verse 24? They basically copy and paste what Rahab told them, they tell to Joshua. 
They're convinced. Now, why do I want to highlight this when I make this statement here about the God who provides? Because I don't want you to miss what's happening in the text. God had already told them he is going to provide for them. But still in God's mercy, through the providence of circumstances and the people he put in their life, they're finally convinced. This is not different for all of us today as Christians. We have God's word right here. We know what God has said. But let's be honest for you and for me as Christians. Sometimes reading it is intellectually helpful, but there's still sometimes a bridge to cross in our unbelief. And God in his mercy, not because he's obligated to, but because he's kind to do so, often provides circumstances, providence, opportunities, and people by which these truths that he's declared become clearly illustrated in front of us. And it fuels our faith. They're coming back from a crazy story with a crazy woman with a confident belief God has got us. I often pray for the Christians of Grace Church that the Christians of Grace Church will have the eyes to see what God is doing right in front of them that would encourage their faith to continue to follow Him when they otherwise might miss it. It's what I often refer to as the evidences of grace. We want to be a people who see that. We come to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, as Pastor Ronald's about to lead us, are visual reminders. God sees us. God saves us. For all those who turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ, that He took sin this seriously that He would send His Son to make payment for it. The question is, do we take it that seriously ourselves as well? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.